charming, in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. A special hello to all of our new listeners as we now are part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network and working in partnership with the Guadalupe Radio Network. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm joined by my dear friend, Andrea picciotti Bayer, also of the Catholic Association, taping a remote show from Miami and the state of Virginia. Gracie, it is so nice to be reconnected with you. I always feel a sense of calm every time we're, we're working together. And I'm really looking forward to this episode where we're going to talk about the interplay of the challenges that we're facing now as a people and our civil rights. Uh, and one of the things that came up recently was a wonderful reminder coming out of the Office of Civil Rights at the Department of Health and Human Services about the importance of our civil civil rights when dealing with medical care and uh, hospital decision making. It's true. Uh, very important because we've been watching this news out of places like Italy where they're having to choose who to use the ventilators on because there's just not enough equipment to go around. So a really nice reminder. Here's a quote from Roger Severino of the Office of Civil Rights. We are concerned that standards of care may start relying on value judgments as to the relative worth of one human being versus another based on the presence or absence of disability. We're concerned that stereotypes about what life is like living with a disability can be improperly used to exclude people from needed care. Now, you, Gracie, as a doctor, know that it's it's such a challenge to make medical decisions and to best serve your patient and serve all of the patients that are coming. But it's a great reminder that our American tradition of respecting the dignity of each and every individual, which is also our foundation of our understanding as Catholics, is something that we need to have at the forefront. So I'm so grateful that Roger Severino uh, put this out and that the federal government is, is reminding us who we really are called to be at this time of challenge. There is the reality of having to triage when people come into an, a packed emergency room where you have a hospital that's being overwhelmed. And this apparently is happening in some hospitals in the Northeast um, and could come to a hospital near near you, near me. And uh, there is the reality of triage. But again, a very important concept is that all people, regardless of their level of ability, regardless of their sex, their race, their their relative worth by, by worldly standards have to be approached with that same consciousness of their dignity as a child of God. Well, and speaking of children, we were talking <laughs> earlier about uh, our new experiences as moms uh, and having all of our kids at home and some of the delights that we have. And I wanted just to mention the Bach method. What's the Bach you, method? It is the bright and cheerful home Oh, I love that. Yes, I think all of us uh, are quarantined basically across the country. I think three quarters of all Americans have been told to stay home. And uh, thankfully, most of us don't have family members who are affected by the virus or are ourselves affected. But we are all at home. With many children, some of us, of different ages, everyone trying to continue their education, which isn't easy given the technological challenges that we're facing, as well as the human challenges of keeping a bright and cheerful home with everyone uh, sort of scrambling on each other. Well, you know, Gracie, I wanted to just share one little anecdote from my house. Um, the first couple 
weeks have been very anxious. And just a few days ago, we started, um, the weather got better and we were outside and we were playing four square in the driveway and I turned on music and we were dancing and some of our neighbors were passing by at a appropriate social distance and they stopped and they started dancing as well. Oh, I and love so that. There's, there's even a way to connect with your neighbors, even when we're, we're quarantined and at a stay at home. Uh, and that's something that maybe is going to be some of the bright lights that come from this very difficult time. Well, it's important to take the silver linings where they exist, right? And it is a silver. I know I'm experiencing a silver lining and having my college. I have a boy in college and he's home now for the foreseeable future. I guess he's not going back to college maybe till September. And I love having at home him at home. I'm also starting to wonder what they do all day in college because now he's back in class and he seems to have oceans of free time. So I'm thinking maybe they could do college in a couple of years. It could all it could cost instead of four. It could cost us less. They would have to party less, but I've, I'd be willing to um, sacrifice or their party time. Just, maybe you just need to have more parties at the Christie House. <laughs> Andrea, we have a great show today. We're going to start with Father Ben Kylie, who is an old friend of ours personally, and also a friend of Catholic, the Catholic Association and Conversations with Consequences. He's joining us all the way from England. He's going to tell us how things are going over there. He's a priest of the Ordinariate and the founder of Nazarene.org. Welcome, Father Benedict Keeley, all the way from England. Thank you, Gracie. Good to be with you. Hi, Andrea. Hey, Father. We're so happy that we were able to connect. Well, it's a joy to be with you, even though we're not in the same country. I'm sitting in England in the afternoon, and you're in America in the morning, but we're, we're communicating on EWTN. Well, you know, it kind of doesn't even matter where we are anymore. We're all connected, and we're all, I guess, one big suffering family. Connected. Well, it's one of the blessings, isn't it, that we can, we can communicate like this. That is one of the blessings, and families can stay connected, especially if they're in isolation. That's really one of the the blessings that this modern technology can bring. And when you think about in the past, you can go back as far as you want, really. When you think about in the past, when people were quarantined, uh, they were really in isolation and, and horribly removed from each other. Now we have this blessing of the internet. Father, the word quarantine is a biblical word, isn't it? Uh, I think it's actually, I may be wrong, and I'm sure you'll get people writing in and calling in immediately, but I think it's a, it's actually Italian uh, Latin from Quaranta from, I believe I was reading the other day that ships were meant to stay outside of the port for Quaranta 40 days uh, and so that's, I think that's the derivation, but it may be biblical as well, but that certainly is um, that sounds like the, the, the etymological word root because they stayed out. Don't you think they must have chosen that number? It could have been 32 days or 41. Oh, yes, exactly. Yes, it's it's uh, yes exactly from from that uh, angle. But the actual word, yeah, I think it's because the ships had to stay out out for forty days. Hopefully, we don't have to stay locked up for forty days. But I fear we are going to have to be. Certainly in England, they're talking about till June, which is really kind of scary. Ooh, wow, um, Father. Before we all went kind of in in general isolation, you had some time yourself after coming back from the U.S. and uh, in, in returning back to England, where you were in, in self-isolation. Um, 
Yes, How well, it's because I came, um, I ha as I said, I had to leave Washington, D.C. quickly because of the travel ban. And my brother and sister, I normally, when I live in England, I stay with my elderly mother, 82-year-old, and she has many of the health conditions which put, put her at the highest risk. So my siblings said they didn't want me, rightly, to go home straight away. So I went to stay with my sister for a week and just was pretty, pretty quiet and just had time to read and think and do a few walks and say mass and that was about it but uh, it was an it was an interesting experience and what's it feeling like over there in england feeling pretty weird um there seems to be an increase of uh, restrictions slowly but surely and this is one of the slightly worrying things that uh, some of our civil liberties perhaps rightly for a short time are beginning to disappear but it's also unnerving i like to see whether we agree with them or not it's good to see contrarians writers uh, and broadcasters at least putting the opposite view because when powers are taken away often they're not given back if you know what I mean there it's very easy to, to restrict for example we're hearing that the police in England are stopping people who are out for a walk the government's allowed us to go out for a walk every day or a run you're not meant to go out for more than an hour and we're seeing reports of people being stopped by the police asking them have you been out for more than an hour and bizarre even drones I mean, that is, to me, it's very, very, very scary. It, that does remind us of communist China, that drones are flying over and telling people, uh, get back inside. I heard something quite Orwellian sounding, that in England, you're being asked to tell on your neighbors if you see them out for their second walk of the day. Yes. <laughs> it's going to encourage nosy neighbors who've been nosy for years. They're going to get really, yeah, it is. It's, it's, uh, hopefully we can laugh a bit. The good thing about being English or British, but I always say English, is uh, we, we do have a sense of humor. So luckily you can begin to laugh and poke fun at it, but um, it's unnerving. It's, it's, there's a good reason for it. I understand similarly why the churches have been closed, but if we don't all feel unnerved by it, there's something worrying, I think. Father, speaking of being unnerved, uh, here we're constantly getting news that, yes, our leaders, um, especially our president and vice president, are healthy. But in recently heard news about the UK Prime Minister and Prince Charles having tested positive for coronavirus, how is that affecting people there? Not greatly. I think it's just helping people to realize that this thing spreads like wildfire. The flip side of it is, in a way, is it, it's good because they both seem to be having a mild version. And in fact, from what I read, again, I'm not the expert, Dr. Gracie is the expert, but it seems that most people who get it, if not the vast majority, it's very mild. It's it's like a cold or even a light flu or even less. And every winter we get that and we don't think much of it. So, But obviously for some, it's very, very serious. And uh, um, I think that's why the, the reactions seem to be so strong, because obviously we don't want the health services, hospitals to be overwhelmed, which I don't think it's because of the potential large number of deaths, because statistically they seem to be relatively low. It's the overwhelming of the, the hospitals and the ICUs, etc. But as I say, Gracie would know a lot more about that than I do. I wonder how the, in the NHS, your National Health Service, is going to be able to meet this emergency because they're always 
understaffed and underprepared, it seems, right, during flu season? Yes and no. I think all the health services and all the medical facilities of the whole world are going to be under intense pressure. Otherwise, for example, you wouldn't have just built this uh, huge hospital in, in New York City and had that medical, had the ship arriving. And we just built a, a huge hospital quickly in, in about five or six days, which is amazing. So it's not just the Chinese that can do it. Um, I think all the health services are potentially looking at being overwhelmed if they receive lots and lots of patients. But as I said, I think the actual numbers of, of people who have it and will be perfectly all right seem to be seem to be pretty high. But, you know, you, you worry about, obviously, the, the people who are most vulnerable, um, sure. like I said, my elderly mother or uh, pregnant women. And um, I've, I was with a, a lovely lady just a, a week or two ago when I was in, in New York City and she's in um, Washington, D.C., and she's pregnant. And, you know, she's very anxious because she's in a high-risk category. Father, one of the things that's been helping me steady my nerves is I live pretty close to my yeah. <laughs> come on well that's that's a different conversation <laughs> Steph. um but but during the day before five o'clock uh i live very close to my parish and i've been walking with a number of my kids uh to make a visit to the blessed sacrament that's not a luxury that folks in england or in the united kingdom entirely have it's very 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 sad if you don't feel some kind of wrenching in your gut uh, with this as a priest certainly but also as a, any faithful catholic then then there's something wrong with you yes we've been ordered to actually literally shut the doors of the churches um, which i find very very hard to accept I, I understand the reasons why public masses probably can't be said and for a while because of the large numbers of people being crammed together but to not be able to walk into your own church and spend some time before the blessed sacrament is tremendously difficult and i think must be a cause of great suffering both for, for priests and people um, there's there's a spiritual component to this without wanting to sound nutty um, i'm sure lots of people have got nutty reasons why they think this is happening but there must be a spiritual component to this because for example in England your listeners may or may not know that on Sunday the 29th of March England England not Britain England was rededicated mm. as the dowry of Mary which is a beautiful, beautiful. medieval title a uh, unique title in the world that was meant to be a, a time of great celebration for us in England there was going to be a large mass in in London and lots of masses everywhere and of course this was all done now behind closed doors and I can't help feeling deep down and I'm sure I'm not alone that the devil has a hand in this uh, he he hates Our Lady obviously mm -hmm. but when we're doing something so beautiful rededicating England as her dowry that it all has to be behind closed doors That's so there's a spiritual component to this and we need to be aware of that and that's why we all have to as it were strengthen our own spiritual resources at home rosary family prayer all those other things if we can't actually go into the church and remember that priests are saying their daily mass uh, mm -hmm. for the people I mean that has immense spiritual power that's what something perhaps we've taken for granted I, I can't help thinking again that there's a little lesson for us as well as priests and people that maybe we've all taken everything far too much for granted you know as a parish priest when I was a parish priest we, we all hear people complaining about they don't like the time of the mass or why did the mass time change or they don't like the music or nutty 
We should thank God we've got the Mass. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. We've been speaking with Father Benedict Keeley, and he's been sharing with us the situation facing Catholics in the UK right now. Father, when you're not in quarantine or sitting very still at home and, and offering your own Mass by yourself, you have an organization called Nazarene.org, and you just received some special news from Cardinal Raymond Burke. We're very blessed. Yes, Nazarene and I started this charity uh, way back in really sort of the end of 2014 when the great onslaught on Christians in the Middle East started. And so I've been working now for the last nearly four years full-time as a priest as my ministry to help persecuted Christians. And Cardinal Burke's been a great supporter and a great friend. And I asked him if he would become the spiritual patron of the charity. And I thought he probably would say, well, that's very kind, but no. But he very willingly said yes and has uh, taken on that role. Yes, and he's he's been so supportive and such a man of prayer, and he's promised to pray daily for us and be a father figure. And that's what, um, so it's a great joy. It's a great gift. And we're also getting a number of other people to come on board to help and give guidance. Father, you still have a lot of contacts, especially in Iraq and in Syria. I know you visited Lebanon recently. Um, one can't help but think that this kind of increased environment of agitation in the world puts persecuted Christians even more at risk. Absolutely desperate. And that's what I would appeal to all the good listeners of EWT and all the, the good Catholics and Christians who listen. Please don't forget the persecutor. I know we're all going to be focusing, and rightly so, on our own worries, our own concerns. But please don't forget these Christians who've suffered so much. And yes, now it's it's much worse. A, because people are forgetting about them. B, their economic conditions are just disastrous. Mm-hmm. For example, we're finding it very hard hard to get uh, assistance to them because the bank situation is so bad, the money transfers. So I would appeal again to people, and I'm not asking to, for, for money now. I'll, I'll come on the show again when this is over and ask for money. I just ask you to keep praying. Pray, pray for them. That's Nazarene needs that more than ever. Just pray for these people and offer your rosary as well. But yes, they're suffering terror. Lebanon, the financial collapse means that people are not even able to take more than about 100 or 200 dollars out a week from the bank mm. star not starvation yet but people are really really struggling in syria the christians are struggling in iraq it's it's very 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 bad are you afraid there'll be increased aggression against them with all the increased anxiety and people like looking for scapegoats and uh, the christians have always been in the middle certainly for example in iraq th- their situation is very serious and they're surrounded one of the towns we help uh, the great priest there. He's surrounded by a sheer militia and I'm sure they feel very nervous because the eyes of the world, even if they weren't on them, they're really not on them now. And of course, US troops are pulling out. And so I would suspect we're going to start hearing, unfortunately, a lot more, many more attacks again. And that anxiety is, is going to increase. That's why I say prayer is essential. When I was in Damascus in Syria before Christmas, the, the one thing the archbishop there asked me to do is, is ask people to pray for them really please pray he said because we feel often that we've been forgotten and, and the power of prayer we know is we believers so we must believe in that power it's it's essential so again I always ask when I speak Gracie you know I've been to your parish in Miami I ask people please say at least one Hail Mary a day that's not hard one Hail Mary a day for the persecuted I think everyone could commit to that Father I remember uh, when you were telling me after your trip that while you were there you had a chance uh, to 
encounter some wonderful French volunteers uh, working in the Middle East. And there were some tragic news, but recently we heard some lovely news. Could you tell us a little bit about that organization and what has transpired? Yes, a wonderful French charity called SOS Chrétien. They they send basically young people, college-age kids, etc., to work for a couple of months in some of these real hotspots. And they've been there for years in Syria, in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Africa. And and um, I got to know them in, in Iraq and in Syria, and one of their le- four of them were kidnapped in Baghdad in mid-January, three Frenchmen and an Iraqi. And we heard nothing, but one of them, their leader, a man called Alexandra, he was my guide when I was in Damascus, lovely man, married to a Syrian with a young baby. He was about to leave Syria and go back to France, and then he was kidnapped. We heard nothing. There was a lot of prayer, again, back to prayer, a lot of rosary a lot of masses, a lot of prayer, and beautifully, we need some good news, beautifully last week they were all released. So uh, a real answer to prayer and a great moment of joy for everyone who'd been worrying so much. But who was it that kidnapped them, Father? Nobody knows. At the moment, we don't know. It's all, I mean, obviously, either one of the militias or um, criminal gang. I mean, they're all mixed up together. There's been a lot of kidnapping for for ransom, but they're all mixed up together. It's hard to, um, certainly Christians didn't kidnap them, that's for sure. But um, we didn't hear, it was very, very quiet. Obviously, there was a lot of stuff going on in the background and the French government must have been involved, but they're free. They are unharmed as far as we know. We haven't seen any pictures of them yet but that's a bit of really good news in in a in a bit of a dark time that sure is father and switching continents right before you returned to england you attended a conference on the situation in africa which is also quite dire well this is it's almost like i'm giving you lots and lots and lots of bad news which Mm. is which is sad but we have to be focused on our persecuted brothers and sisters and this is a situation that's unfolding in africa not reaching the news media hardly at all. There is a massive now being called genocide of Christians sweeping across Africa, the uh, countries of Nigeria, Niger, Chad, uh, Cameroon, Burkina Faso. It's sweeping across. It's Islamic terrorism attacking Christians. Did you know, I'm sure the listeners didn't know, that more Christians have been killed in Nigeria because of their faith in the last three years than in the entire Iraq war. So Christians, 7,000 plus Nigerian Christians have been killed just in the last three years because of their faith. They're burning them alive, they're beheading them. Meanwhile, nothing is being reported, virtually nothing in the media. That's why when people tell me in the Middle East, Christians say, we don't think you care about us in the West. Well, I think the Africans have a right to say that because, um, but of course, if people don't know, it's not their fault. That's part of my work is to help through wonderful things like your program is to help people realize what's going on. But they are some wonderful people. I was with a wonderful Nigerian priest, a real hero, this man here, Father Joseph Fidelis. What a wonderful name, Faithful (laughs) Joseph. He is just a great priest, and he was telling us about what's happening. He's in danger. His bishop's in danger. His people are in danger. Um, So he was speaking to us, a group of sort of experts, 
were down at Ave Maria Law School in Florida, in Naples, just to, to try and get sort of our heads around what's happening and to start working on helping people realize and also in trying to influence U.S. policy. For example, there are U.S. troops there who are not fighting, but they're helping train, etc. There's a movement to, to get them to leave, and, and what they're pleading, the, the Christians are pleading to please don't pull those troops out just because they, they provide at least some kind of buffer. So there's a lot going on, and hopefully we'll hear more about it, even though we're all being diverted by, being diverted by this, this awful plague that we're going through. Father, you uh, do something that I think is very important when we think about the persecuted, is you give a name to people so that we can really understand and pray for them by name and and understand our relationship and our connection to them. I know in my own parish we had this beautiful priest from Burkina Faso, Father Alphonse, who comes every summer and he's had to suspend that. He's the mm-hmm. head of the seminary there and he's had to suspend his visits because of instability and making sure he's there. I was wondering what were the kind of key takeaways from the Africa Conference that in addition to just keep the situation and the plight of our brothers and sisters in Africa. What were the other key takeaways for us to pay attention to? Well, there are going to be, 2020 is going to be critical for sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, There are going to be 15 national elections in different countries, including Burkina Faso, Nigeria, Cameroon, Mali, Mozambique. Mozambique, which of course was, was Portuguese colony, so you'd think there'd be a lot of Christians, and there are, but there are now Islamic attacks there. I think it's yes prayer at first prayer but also talking to making sure our, our politicians are, are aware of this and are, are, are not just sweeping this under the carpet our media we're lucky we have a few people in the media who are with us and who help us and who highlight this but the majority don't they they move on to other things and so I think this is this is part of the the campaign is to make first and foremost is to make people aware that this is happening uh, also not to deny it or to give it other reasons for example in Nigeria there's a real problem with what are called the Fulani herdsmen. These are groups pushing Christians out of their ancient farmlands and killing them all and then taking over their farmland. Well, some organizations are saying this is due to climate change. I'm afraid it's not climate change. It's murdering Christians. So you know, we, we've got to be blunt about this kind of stuff and, and not allow this uh, political correctness to overtake reality because that's both a lie and very dangerous. I'm afraid that one of the side tragedies of the coronavirus pandemic is that people really are not paying attention. If they weren't paying attention before, they're paying less attention now. Everyone's obviously very focused on the virus. But I hope... Yeah. Absolutely. that at least our listeners uh, will be able to put a little attention into Africa and the Middle East and our persecuted brothers and sisters with your help, Father. So thank you so much and for your help. <laughs> thank you for your time. You help. Thank you, Gracie. Thank you, Andre. You help so much by by allowing this sort of thing to be uh, reported on and spoken on on your, your program. So bless you all. Oh, thanks, Father. We can't thank you enough for the great work of Nazarene.org, and our listeners should definitely go to your website and check out the information there and how they can help. Thank you again, Father. Thank you, Gracie. Thank you, Andrea. Bless you. Next on Conversations with Consequences, we'll be speaking to Tom Farr of the Religious Freedom Institute in Washington, D.C., to talk about how to preserve and protect religious freedom during this very difficult crisis, and also a wonderful social media initiative they've just begun. Next on EWTN Radio, Conversations with Consequences.
Welcome back, friends, to Conversations with Consequences, the weekly radio show of the Catholic Association, broadcasting every Saturday at 5 p.m. on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, along with my colleague, Andrea Picciotti-Bayer, and joining us is our friend, Tom Farr, who is president of the Religious Freedom Institute in Washington, D.C. Welcome back, Tom, to Conversations with Consequences. Great to be with you, Gracie and Andrea. We really wanted to have you on because this uh, this crisis that we're all living through, this terrible pandemic, is bringing up a lot of really important issues when it comes to religious liberty and conscience rights. So we have a lot to talk to you about. Earlier in the show, we spoke with a great advocate for persecuted Christians, Father Benedict Keeley. And we also want to get a, your sense of the strain on religious freedom globally. It's the perfect opportunity for, th- for a bad situation in terms of religious freedom to get worse with this terrible crisis, but it also creates opportunities for people to recognize the value of religion. So I look forward to talking about that. Tom, we wanted to talk a little bit about some hot spots that have always been of, of concern when it comes to religious freedom. And right before all of this kind of came to fruition, we were worried about the situation in China. Uh, can you give us a sense of if you think that there's an added pressure in light of the virus uh, to religious freedom in China? Well, I think there's probably no question about it. Any one of uh, your listeners who pays attention to China knows that it's in, was before this crisis in a terrible situation with respect to religious freedom across the board, including Catholic and Protestant minorities, uh, including uh, the Tibetan Buddhists, but perhaps the most uh, unfortunate of all, of all are the Muslims, the Uyghur Muslims of Xinjiang province out in the northwest, who are literally have been rounded up into concentration camps over the last several months. And the fear, of course, is that same fear we have for our prisons. And uh, I, uh, by the way, I think our, most of our prisons, probably all of our prisons, are luxurious compared to these concentration camps. But if you can imagine the fear that a virus contagion spreading within a prison population. Think of them with up to or perhaps more than a million people in these camps in Xinjiang province. Uh, I'm not aware of direct reports about this problem developing. I suppose if there is any benefit whatsoever to an authoritarian government, it is their capacity to literally shut things down. But the fear, of course, is that this thing would, would, would start uh, in any of the religious communities or, frankly, any other community in China. And as we have seen in some reports about China in Wuhan, the city of Wuhan, uh, people have been treated very badly uh, in some cases. So. Uh, I don't want to suggest that this is a problem yet, but it is certainly a fear that those of us who uh, focus on religious freedom have, namely that the, the, the lack of concern with the dignity of the human person, the lack of concern in China with human dignity overall would lead them to draconian measures, which they've already taken simply because they don't want religious people uh, applying their wares publicly in China. 
It's it's a very scary thought to think about these people who are in concentration camps, if, uh, living, I'm sure, very in very terrible conditions, crowded upon each other. If the virus should spread there, which I don't see why not, it seems to be going everywhere without with impunity. I can't imagine the Chinese government taking good care of these poor people. No, I think that's right. As I say, the only hope is that they will, have, out of their own interest, not having to deal with it, they will have taken steps to prevent these things from getting into the camps. But the province of Xinjiang, uh, like much of China, that is to say outside these prisons, as far as I know, is, is just as susceptible and is experiencing the spread of the virus uh, in, in no less terms than the rest of China. So we're watching it very closely, very concerned about it. The first thing I saw, Tom, when I went to China to adopt our youngest daughter, the very first thing I saw when I walked out of the plane um, went out to the parking lot to find our, our bus because we were in a big adoption group with 12 or 15 families, was uh, a, a, a beggar woman, obviously from maybe a rural, she looked rural, very poor, came up to us to beg, and two police officers took her around the corner of the bus, and, and, I, and I peeked around the corner to see what they were doing, and they were beating her with truncheons. That's the very first thing I saw when I got out of uh, off my plane in China. You know, for a while, what's happening in Hong Kong, which of course is part of China, but is a, uh, a relatively free democracy, and the fear that the Chinese were going to move in to Hong Kong is still there, but it's obviously deferred. Uh, the Chinese are on a, a campaign to clean up their image. I think we have to be very, very careful about believing what the Chinese say and what they send. I read somewhere that they had sent 400,000 masks to a country in Europe that had to be returned because they were deficient. On the other hand, uh, they are manufacturing some stuff that's useful and sending them to people. So. I guess the point is, we have to be realists when it comes to China. The, the Chinese government, not the Chinese people, but the, the Communist Party of China is capable of terribly savage action against anyone, including its own people, if it sees it in its interest to do so. On the other hand, it is capable of using its power in constructive ways too. So we should bear in mind both as we try to get the Chinese to do the right thing for their own people and, and others around the world. Tom, your institute, the Religious Freedom Institute, has a number of action teams in areas where there are very strong authoritarian governments. Um, and I'm thinking primarily of India and Pakistan. What kind of reports are you hearing from the folks there that you have contacts with about how those governments are dealing with this new challenge? Well, of course, the, the challenge in both of those countries and, and in other countries surrounding is growing like it is in our own country. And while we don't know much about the governments in those areas, particularly in India, which competes with China as the largest country in the world, uh, huge numbers of, of people, minorities, uh, even though India has experienced enormous growth um, in the last, as has China for that matter, in the last couple of decades, there's still incredible levels of poverty so that the capacity to take care of these people should this virus begin to spread. And I'm getting some indications that it is. I mean, it is, it's, it's almost inevitable that it's gonna spread in these crowded, huge cities of India 
And of course, the if you look at Italy, where uh, the hospital capacity is not what it is in the United States, but is probably leaps and bounds above what it is in, in India, uh, I really, really fear for, uh, for the people there, including the religious minorities, who are not likely to be first on the list to be taken care of, but just in general about the the large numbers of very, very poor, impoverished people who will not have access or certainly not quick access to, uh, to medical help, um, which makes the search for a cure and a, a, a preventative all the more urgent. Uh, we're doing it for our own country, and of course, if we can discover these things here, we can hopefully manufacture them and ship them around the world, or the, or the means to, to manufacture them in their own countries. But I'm very worried in particular about India. Um, uh, the, the governments in those countries, as far as I know, are at this point following the same kinds of protocols that we see elsewhere. They're doing shutdowns, um, but the, the capacity for persecution is very, very high in that, simply because of the, again, it's, it's the, um, among some, the lack of an understanding of the, the dignity of every person, and that, that in a crisis like this, no one group should be put behind others because of their religion or because of disability or because of any other thing that historically has been considered to denigrate the, the dignity of a, an individual or a group of people. So we're really concerned about this and we're watching it very closely, uh, not only in India and Pakistan, but in, uh, in all the countries that, that we are present in some fashion, even if we're not physically present. And I think, Tom, that uh, religious communities and religious belief is that we are we are people that are prepared for for disaster. We are spiritually prepared for it, and our communities are are prepared with their generosity and their their love of the other uh, to 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 be present in these terrible situations. Because I think things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. I'm especially concerned with the economic pressure that so many people are going to be feeling. We did a study a few years ago called uh, Under Caesar's Sword, where we looked at Christian minorities around the world and how they were coping with persecution. And one of the not unexpected things we found was that when there were troubles, when there were uh, earthquakes or floods or, or tsunamis or other kinds of trouble, Christians and other religious minorities were first on the scene to help, not just to help their own people, but to help everybody, because they have a powerful motivation. They believe they're, they're called by this, by God to do this. Uh, one way to, uh, a fancy political science way to talk about that is spiritual capital, which is a term I think coined by a, an American sociologist named Robert Putnam. And it, it just a couple of days ago, one of our uh, people at, at RFI, Byron Johnson, who's a professor out at Baylor University, had a piece on March 25th in the Dallas News, which takes this, this point up and, and just makes the point that according to one study, uh, half the social capital, more than half the social capital in the United States is provided by religious communities. And if you took that away, 
you would be destroying our food distribution for the poor, our shelter for the poor. The, the Look at who has put up one of the hospitals in, in uh, Central Park uh, in, in Manhattan. It's Samaritan's Purse, and I've noted that all the few of the, uh, the newscasts that I've seen, none that I've seen, have mentioned that that is a Christian charity run by uh, Franklin Graham, the son of mm-hmm. Billy uh, he has also opened uh, one of these hospitals in uh, somewhere in the Middle East. Uh, I forget where it is. But the point is, Christians and others are out there helping other people, and they're not asking, you know, religious identification at the door. If you do anything, if our governments, if our state governments in this country do anything to undermine that, then they're not just harming the religious communities against whom they hold sometimes some hostility, but they're harming the country and they're harming themselves. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. We've been speaking with Tom Farr, President of the Religious Freedom Institute in Washington, D.C. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Tom, you made such a wonderful point about how important it is to how important it is to value the contribution of religious uh, life to the whole society, especially at this time of crisis. What a wonderful point about Samaritan's Purse. I, I read about this hospital in Central Park, but I, I read about it probably from two different sites but nobody mentioned samaritan's purse right well it's i mean sometimes that's just you know people not knowing exactly who's doing what but uh, in some cases there's a hesitancy uh, i saw a couple of newscasts that said it's samaritan's purse but that was it there was no further explanation that by the way folks this happens to be a christian charity uh, and i would just add that you know the spiritual resources that we each have we as catholics have an understanding not only of the the absolute necessity to help everyone as best we can and to to abide by these terribly unfortunate but necessary closings of churches and not having access to the Eucharist, not having access in many cases to confession, uh, although I, I found a way the other day, I just can't, I can't do without confession. Uh, <laughs> Tom, um, you and I both live in Virginia, right? And just recently, our governor uh passed some executive orders that have very strict rules on the number of people who can gather, uh, 10 or less, and and then kind of a stay-at-home order, right? So there's even more limitations. When I first heard the news um, about the limitation, I went, oh no, that means I can't make a visit to my parish to make a visit to the Blessed Sacrament. Fortunately, I, I read the order and it allows for people to travel to and from places of worship. How common is that? I think they're pretty common. Uh, in some states, uh, there is an explicit exemption even for church services. So we have probably six or eight states, I think Pennsylvania, Mississippi, um, uh, perhaps uh, Kansas, uh, I may have those wrong. Those governors have made an explicit exemption, not only for the, the 10 rule, but for higher than that, uh, for religious services, whether that's wise or not. I think in many of these states, uh, the Catholics certainly, and many of the, most of the Christians and others are voluntarily saying we're not going to do this because we don't want to hurt our own congregants, and we don't want to be carriers of this. But so I think by and large, in most states, Catholics are able to do what you're talking about, Andrea, and that is uh, to to go and pay a visit, uh, to pray uh, in the sanctuary, uh, and 
to you know to go to confession you have to stay away in virginia when i went to confession the priest said you know six feet six feet <laughs> and then and then we went into a room and we sat across from each other and uh talked very, very quietly because I didn't want anybody to hear me. <laughs> I will say, though, uh, here going to the a little bit negative, in Virginia, the governor did exactly what you said, for which I'm grateful. But in the exceptions, you know, the, the way this is set up is a little odd to me. We, 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 there are essential services. Well, to me, you know, religion is a pretty essential service. And one of, the, one of them is liquor stores. And <laughs> but, but in all those abortions. And uh, so we have all of these health care, very, very important health care restrictions. And this governor, Governor Northam, is saying is that um, it remains an essential service to people to be able to have access to abortions. No other, no, I, no other uh, kinds of, um, what is the phrase, um, you know, unnecessary surgery or a surgery, elective, elective surgery. But abortions, we've got to have. Now, that, that really bothers me, and I, and I think that Catholics should raise their voices about that. As a radiologist, I work for several clinics around town, outpatient clinics, and they've all basically come to a dead stop. So all the patients that I used to see were uh, people who who needed medical care. They needed it. None of these people were healthy. They were getting radiology work because they um, had pressing medical issues. And now yeah. the uh, several states have made it very clear that abortion has to be exempted. It's, that's right. It's, it's absolutely preposterous. And I think what we see here, unfortunately, is those people who hold this right of abortion in such high esteem are using this crisis as an opportunity to to make that point and actually to spread it. Uh, indeed, in the in the law that Congress just passed, uh, Speaker Pelosi, comma, Catholic, comma, was very hard to get into this, the, uh, the, the ex extending the opportunities for the rights of abortion. So I think we have to be vigilant about that. Tom, you mentioned some of the bright lights, and I wanted to ask you to speak a little bit about a beautiful initiative that your organization has come up with to especially utilize social media and show everyone how strong our faith can be at this time of great trial. Right. It's a campaign called Hope During COVID, and you can access it on any of our social media platforms, um, Facebook. Boy, I'm the wrong guy to talk about social media platforms. <laughs> Twitter and uh, what's the other, Instagram, as well as our webpage, which the old fashioned among us will uh, understand, uh, religiousfreedominstitute.org. Uh, and you will see there, we are inviting people to uh, either provide to us and we'll do it or they can upload themselves short videos that explain how their faith is helping them cope, perhaps uh, interiorly, uh, you know, through spiritual means or helping uh, their communities where they live. The purpose of this is, is to give encouragement to people and to give them hope because uh, this is something that most religious people can understand, but we want everyone to understand it. There is great reason for hope. It's nothing more than 
giving encouragement to a world that needs it. Tom, it's a fabulous idea. I loved your video at religiousfreedominstitute.org. All our listeners should really go there and watch the video, which will cheer you up in this time of anxiety and stress. Tom, I feel like we've barely scratched the surface. The time has gone too fast, but I want to thank you for joining us and giving us your perspective as the president of the Religious Freedom Institute in Washington, D.C., and I hope that you and your family will continue to do well. Thank you, Gracie and Andrea. Thank you so much for everything you're doing. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us tomorrow on Palm Sunday. Throughout this upcoming week, the Church calls holy. It's holy first because of all Jesus did during these days. But it's also called holy because it's meant to make us holy. If we live this week the right way, if we enter into the mysteries we celebrate, if we internalize all Jesus won for us during these most holy days, if we in short enter into a conversation with Jesus, not just with thoughts or words, but with our whole life. Holy Week is supposed to be our most most faith-filled week of the year, but that requires our choosing to make it the most faithful week of the year. It's obviously going to be very challenging in 2020 because of the various restrictions that have been placed on public worship due to the coronavirus. The liturgies of Holy Week are so powerful that when we show up and are attentive, the palms, prayers, readings, music, homily, smells, and bells will normally bring us into the heart of the mysteries. Just prioritizing the time to be there already predisposes us to receive what God wants to give. Just entering into the church is a choice to leave the profane and enter the sacred. Such settings can't be replicated. But this Holy Week, we're summoned to do the best we can. To live it well will require taking responsibility, to give greater than normal cooperation with God's grace, to have more focused prayer, and far greater interior and exterior preparation. The interior preparations are going to involve prayer and reading. There's some great books to help us. I'd recommend you get a copy of Bishop Albin Goodyear, The Passion Death of Our Lord Jesus Christ, or Pope Benedict's Part 2 of his Jesus of Nazareth series on Holy Week. I'd also encourage you to watch the great movies about Jesus' life, from Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, or the visual Bibles films on each of the four Gospels. As most of us will have to watch the sacred ceremonies on television or on devices, learning how to use these media better to focus on Jesus through movies like these will make it easier for us to pray through them better as we watch the ceremonies. Our exterior preparations are likewise important. They begin with trying to create as best we can sacred space in our home where we can block out distractions, place that's clean and in order, like a well-cleaned church. Should dress up like we would if we're attending our parish. We can't pray well in sweats. We should actively participate in the liturgies to the extent possible, praying aloud the responses, kneeling, standing, and sitting as we would while attending. Even though we will not be receiving Holy Communion, it would be good nevertheless to live a Eucharistic fast in preparation for Mass, to increase our hunger for God, and to prevent our needlessly running to the bathroom. We should turn off all our other devices or prevent interruptions and distractions. We begin Holy Week tomorrow on Palm Sunday and in the Gospel at the beginning of Mass in the reading of St. Matthew's Passion. We see five different ways we're called to respond to Jesus with faith so that the mysteries of this week may fulfill his desire to make us holy. First thing we learn is how to welcome Jesus. 
The crowds laid their cloaks on the ground, lifted palm branches, and exclaimed, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Their attitude shows us the type of exhilaration we should have to welcome Jesus into our homes this Holy Week. Second thing we learn is how to value Jesus appropriately. At the beginning of the Passion, Judas goes to the chief priests and scribes and asks, What are you willing to give me if I hand Jesus over to you? They gave him 30 shekels of silver, the equivalent of 90 days' worth of work. Many today betray Jesus for less. If we're going to live Holy Week and life the way God wants, we need to commit ourselves never to selling Jesus out, to sacrifice for him. We see an example of someone who would never betray Jesus in Mary of Bethany spending the equivalent of 300 days wages, almost a full year salary, just to anoint Jesus' feet. Jesus' love is so amazing, so divine, that it demands our soul, our life, our all. The third thing the readings teach us is how important it is to stay awake with Jesus in prayer. Jesus asks us to stay awake and pray, reminding us that the spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. The apostles in the garden fell asleep, and we see how they abandoned Jesus despite their love for him. Jesus wants us to stay close to him in prayer, to enter into greater intimacy with his suffering, especially during the sacred triduum of Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday. Are we ready? Are we committed? The four things the readings teach us is about the dramatic choice we have to make. Pilate asks, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus? The mob we know chose Barabbas. Whom do we choose? Choosing Jesus on the most momentous occasions comes from choosing Jesus repeatedly and faithfully in small decisions. Choosing to pray, to receive his forgiveness and share it, to love him in our neighbor, to ponder his words in the Bible rather than spending time watching or reading the news, to make him in the Eucharist truly the source and summit of our life. Are we making that choice for Jesus or choosing Barabbas in disguise? The fifth thing the readings teach us to live Holy Week well is our need to help Jesus carry his cross. We're called to become like Simon of Cyrene. The Lord said that we can't be his disciple unless we deny ourselves, pick up our cross each day, and follow him. That's a condition for the entire year. But especially in Holy Week, it's a particularly pressing summons. Jesus wants us to become co-redeemers, to make what is lacking in his sufferings for the sake of the world's salvation. This week is one in which we help Jesus carry his cross by helping others carry theirs, by visiting, consoling the sick, especially those who are suffering because of the coronavirus or who are mourning the death of loved ones who are otherwise impacted. The more we help others carry their crosses, the closer we will be to Jesus. To welcome Jesus, to value him appropriately, to accompany him in prayer, to choose him over every Barabbas, to help him carry his redeeming cross. These are the means by which we will live with faith this most important week of the year. This is the pathway by which Jesus will make us holy like he is holy during this special week of sanctification. Let's pray for each other. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. Catch us every Saturday at 5 p.m. on your EWTN local affiliate or on Sirius Channel 130. And of course, you can listen to the show as a podcast at thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts. Here's hoping that you have a lovely week. You go with our prayers. 